It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. All right, all right. I know I shouldn't have clicked on it. I felt stupid. You ever do that? You see an obvious clickbait headline, and you say, ah, who really cares? And then you kind of like, all right, it'll take two seconds to check it out. And this one I saw on the Drudge Report. It went to a local Denver TV station report on a Colorado State University study, the lead of which, and the story is, men who like cats are less likely to get a date. So here is the details, so you don't have to waste time on it. Uh, the, the, the subjects in this study, study in quotation marks, uh, were shown pictures of men with uh, out cats. 38% of the women said they likely or very likely to have uh, casually date him. 37% they consider a serious relationship with this unknown dude. But when they were shown pictures of the same man holding a cat, those numbers dropped 33% for each category. I didn't see anything here about dogs. But anyway, I'm filled with self-loathing. But there you have it. Uh, I mentioned the other day uh, Jimmy Kimmel taking the summer off. Uh, he says it's not related, but it does feel kind of related uh, to the fact that uh, old video surfaced of him doing a, a blackface skit from many, many years ago. Um, you know, and you know, the same thing happened to Fallon, Jimmy Fallon. Uh, well, now adding to Kimmel's woes, uh, Fox News recently obtained audio from an old podcast about seven years ago in which Kimmel admitted to having used the N-word in a skit back in 1996. He was imitating Snoop Dogg for a Christmas song. Um, look, I don't know. People are comedians. Are they now going to just be uh, kicked out of the public square because of something they said or did in the interest of being funny 20, 25 years ago? I'm not saying it's right. I think it's terrible. You know, a lot of people did racially insensitive stuff at that time. Uh, Well, this didn't escape the notice of Donald Trump Jr., who uh, has a knack for going after Kimmel, who, you know, in fairness, you know, is a constant acerbic, uh, vitriolic critic of President Trump, as is Stephen Colbert, as is Seth Meyers, as is uh, almost all of the late nine crew. So the Donald Jr. Uh, tweet is, to be clear, I'm 100% against pushing com- punishing comedians for jokes, I guess he meant to write. Even bad jokes from unfunny hack comedians like Jimmy Kimmel. But according to the left's own woke rules that Jimmy Kimmel wants to force others to live by, it's hard to see how ABC Network allows him to keep his show. Well, I don't think he's going to lose his show, but there is a point here maybe about double standards. When somebody who's on the opposite political side of you uh, is found to have said something, blogged something, tweeted something you know, years earlier, it's like, aha, this person should never show his, his or her face again. All right. Uh, Major League Baseball, I got to tell you, I am so fed up. I've done a couple of rants on this. This one will be really short because I don't care anymore. Like, I don't care whether they play baseball or not because you have all of this potential money, what used to be considered the national pastime, and they can't agree. Major League Baseball owners are ridiculously greedy. The players union can be obstinate. Uh, I think I cited a study or an estimate the other day saying the whole gap between them is like amounts to $20 million per team. And yet the values of the team have all increased by hundreds of millions of dollars. The, the average MLB team now is worth almost $2 billion. So the negotiations are now over because there's yet another impasse. The uh, owners made an offer for a 60-game regular season and an expanded pro, uh, postseason. The players said, uh, well, they're not going to do that. So that means that it looks like the commissioner will impose a season, uh, could reopen them uh, July 1st, I guess for training camps, opening day about three weeks later. The season could still be 60 games, but then the postseason would be shorter. 
the regular season has to be over by September 27th, according to the owners, because they want to get the playoffs in before a possible second wave of the virus. We'll get to the virus in a minute. This is really not encouraging news. But, you know, here's another thing that could just derail this. Uh, last week, at least five players and three staffers of the Philadelphia Phillies tested positive for coronavirus. Um, USA Today says at least 40 players and staff members across the sport have tested positive. I think the Phillies and one other team, I believe Toronto, have shut down their training camps, at least temporarily, because of this. Um, and you switch over to basketball, which is going to play all the games in Florida. And Florida is a new hotspot for COVID-19. So I don't know. I mean, I miss sports. I'm so fed up with this endless baseball bickering. They don't seem to care about the fans at all. But there are also practical problems. You know, the players have to decide that some of the players are just going to sit out the season, the shortened season, because they don't want to take the risk. And I have to understand that. We all have to understand that. All right, Apple, uh, you know, has a, a yearly thing where it says, here are the new features on the Apple Watch. Well, this hot feature this year is the Apple Watch will remind you that you got to wash your hands. And it will tell you how to wash your hands. I don't know, this sounds like we're all six years old. Uh, it includes a hand-washing timer that counts down. It uses motion sensors. This is great technology. To listen to the sound of water on people's hands and guides them to wash their hands correctly because a lot of people just do it too quickly. Uh, also, you know these, I guess they're called Memojis, where you can have an uh, avatar that kind of looks like you and is, you know, when you send out emails, it has that face, or if you would send text messages to people. Well, now you can get a customized emoji that looks like you with an option to have a mask on your emoji. I mean, these are the times we live in, folks. Uh, a little bit about Donald Trump. Um, I have to admire the many different ways that he has to insult people. Take John Bolton, you know, just as a random example. He's already called him a dope. Uh, he's already called him a disgruntled, boring fool. He's called him a wacko. And, and on and on and on. So today, or last night, he's got washed-up creepster John Bolton is a lowlife who should be in jail, money seized for disseminating for profit, highly classified information. Washed-up creep, creepster uh, enters the Trump uh, lexicon. The president uh, spoke to reporters before leaving on an out-of-town trip this morning. I tuned in, and uh, he was he was asked a question about the rally. He said, you know, the rally, um, he was very pleased with the crowd. We all know he wasn't pleased with the crowd, but certainly the expectations got too high. And later he came back to it on his own. Shows that the criticism is really bugging him. And I have a column today saying the number of people who showed up isn't really that important in the middle of a pandemic. What's important is the message and he gave a kind of a rambling speech without a clear re-election message. In any event, what the president said repeatedly in his press avail this morning is, and this is true, the only uh, one of the three cable news networks to carry the rally on Saturday night was Fox News. Fox News got the biggest Saturday rating in its history, 7.7 million people watching the president at that rally. And that makes sense. I, I've never said, well, only 6,000 people showed up and therefore people are interested in what the president has to say is that they, you know, they didn't want to go out and be in an arena with thousands of other people, especially when everybody thought it would be sold out. But do people like watching him on TV? Is he entertaining? Yes, yeah, 7.7 million people watched on Fox. And one other note about the virus before we get uh, down to business here, uh, starting today, Travelers, travelers at LAX uh, at the airport will be asked to undergo a new screening procedure. Walking past cameras, I didn't know this tech existed, that can flag travelers with a fever, which can be a sign of the virus. But what I don't get about what the LA airport is doing is 
you're supposed to be notified if you have a temperature of 100.4 or higher, and then you're pulled aside for a secondary screening. But even if you have the high fever, you can, it's up to you. You can still get on the plane. So, like, what is the point? All right. Story number one is on the coronavirus. You know, when I started this, it kind of coincided with when I've been doing it at home, um, which, like millions of other people, trying to work from home during COVID-19. A story in the New York Times today I found just troubling. I mean, it's not, I mean, the number of deaths has been going down, but people are still dying every day in America from the coronavirus. After months of the lockdown, the nation is entering a new phase. New COVID-19 clusters, these outbreaks are being found just everywhere. According to this story, uh, they've been found in a Pentecostal church in Oregon, a strip club in Wisconsin, and lots of other places in between. In Baton Rouge, 100 people at least tested positive for the virus after visiting bars in a nightlife district that's popular among Louisiana State University students. A lot of students are just going out, drinking, having a good time, no masks, hanging out with other people, and now we're seeing some of these outbreaks. At a Christian summer camp near, near Colorado Springs, at least 11 employees fell ill just before the season's opening, and now the camp is canceling overnight stays. In Las Vegas, just weeks after the casinos reopened with some restrictions, a handful of employees from casinos and restaurants have tested positive, and workers are now begging guests at the casinos to wear masks in a video. Um, this just sort of underscores how you know these outbreaks are, are, are taking place. Small towns, as well as big cities, used to just be, you know, more densely populated urban areas. New known virus cases were on the rise in 23 states yesterday, as the outlook uh, worsened, particularly across the south and west. Hospitalizations reaching their highest levels yet in Arizona and Texas. Missouri reported the highest single-day case totals over the weekend. So it's just everywhere. Uh, Ohio, certain counties in Pennsylvania, including the county that includes Pittsburgh, um, it's just a Union County, Oregon, about four hours from Portland. Uh, in June, there were only eight cases. By June 20th, 250. Some of that tied to the local Lighthouse Pentecostal Church. Anyway, you get the idea. And I just find this deeply troubling. Everyone's talking about the second wave. Uh, in Washington State, Governor Jay Inslee uh, said that there's a desperate situation for public health in central Washington's Yakima County. Uh, where people just aren't going to be, he says, enough hospital beds. The beds are at capacity and people being taken to to Seattle. Trump talked about this today. You know, he took a lot of heat for saying at the rally that, well, you know, we have uh, more testing. If we didn't have as much testing, we wouldn't have as many cases. White House claiming it was a joke. Well, today he said, look, testing's a double-edged sword. And there's some truth to this. When you have more tests, you find more cases because there's lots of people who had the virus that you just didn't know about. But public health experts say this is not just, these higher numbers are not just about doing more testing. It's not unrelated, but it's also about the reopenings. Look, America has to get back to work. We can't stay locked down forever. I understand all that. At the same time, it's just sobering. You know, here we are in the middle of the summer. Supposedly the warmer weather, you know, makes it more difficult for the virus. And the virus is having these outbreaks, these uh, spreading events, sometimes super spreader. All right, story number two. Um, Op-ed piece in the New York Times, which obviously took so much heat over printing and then denouncing denouncing that Tom Cotton op-ed about uh, using the military uh, for demonstrations, and then, you know, there was such an uproar in the Times newsroom. You know the whole backstory. Well, today the Times publishes a lengthy op-ed by Wes Lowry, longtime Washington Post reporter who left son of in a dispute with the paper's editor. 
uh, now works for an online version of 60 Minutes. Uh, he's won two Pulitzer Prizes. I know this guy slightly. A uh, very smart re- uh, African-American reporter. He starts off with an anecdote about when he was just a young reporter, a rookie reporter 10 years ago, working for the Boston Globe. He'd been dispatched to Roxbury, a predominantly black section of Boston. Um, there had been a stabbing there. First person he goes up to says, who are you with? And when Lowry says the Globe, he says, the Globe? The Globe doesn't have black reporters. What are you doing here? You lost? You all don't write about this part of town. He goes on to say that most American media organizations, and this is his point of view. I agree with some of it. I don't agree with some of it. I put it out there for your consideration. Do not reflect the diversity of the nation or the communities they cover, and too often confine, confine their coverage of black and brown neighborhoods to the crime of the day. Well, that's been true for 30, 40 years. He talks about the failure of the mainstream press to accurately cover black communities is intrinsically linked with its failure to employ, retain, and listen to black people. Now, I have to jump in here and say, the editor of the New York Times, Dean Baquet, is African-American. When he worked at the Los Angeles Times, he was editor there, so the LA Times had an African-American editor. The Washington Post has never had an African-American editor. Obviously, just having one person, even if that person runs the organization, is not the same as having people at all different levels. But... I feel compelled to say it's better than it used to be. Because when I started out in the business, there were a couple of black reporters on each paper. And it was sad and pathetic. And over time, that changed. And the numbers are much better now. But they tend to get hired. And then if they don't feel like they're advancing, they tend to leave. And this is part of what Lowry's talking about. He then goes on to this whole question of objectivity. Because I've talked about how I feel like the agenda-driven sentiments of many in newsrooms, like the New York Times, which says that we don't want to hear another opinion in the paper because that's just uh, doesn't match what we believe, is a departure from the style of journalism, like let's try to be fair, that I grew up with and still passionately believe in. All right, Wes Lowry, since American journalism's pivot decades ago from an openly partisan press to a model of professed objectivity, the mainstream has allowed what it considers objective truth to be cited almost exclusively by white reporters and their mostly white bosses. And those selective truths have been calibrated to avoid offending the sensibilities of white readers. Interesting. Um, The views and inclinations of whiteness are accepted as the objective neutral. When black and brown reporters and editors challenge those conventions, says Lowry, it's not uncommon for them to be pushed out, reprimanded, or robbed of new opportunities. Now there he speaks from personal experience, because he doesn't mention this in the piece. But Washington Post editor Martin Barron, Marty Barron had uh, warned him that he could be fired if he continued to speak out in this way on social media in a way that Barron felt was undermining his own objectivity. And he he goes on to talk about, you know, there isn't really objectivity. Um, Then he gets to the part of the uh, op-ed. Well, before I get to that, he says that... uh, True fairness would go as far as requiring editors to seriously consider not publishing any significant account of a police shooting until the staff has tracked down the perspective, the side of the person the police had shot. That way, beat reporters aren't left simply rewriting a law enforcement news release. All right, I, you know, I just don't think it's practical. I think we should make every effort to get the side. Uh, you know, sometimes there's no video and you got to he said, he said. Um, but if somebody's dead and a police officer has done the shooting, and we only have the denial by the police, and you haven't yet been able to find out the family of this person, can you not publish anything? I just don't see that as practical. Should we be every effort to get that point of view? Yes, absolutely. 
Anyway, he finally gets to uh, a paragraph that makes an implicit reference to Donald Trump. Black journalists are speaking out because one of the nation's major political parties, that would be the GOP, and the current presidential administration are providing refuge to white supremacist rhetoric and policies. And our industry's gatekeepers are preoccupied with seeming balanced, all the while black and brown lives and livelihoods remain imperiled. Okay, I'm a white guy. I don't see us as providing a refuge, in most cases, to white supremacist rhetoric. But Wes Lowry sees it differently, and there you have his piece. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Story number three. There was a hell of a mess in D.C. Uh, late yesterday. Over the Andrew Jackson statue. I've passed that statue a million times. It's in Lafayette Park, right across Pennsylvania Avenue from the White House. Uh, so, you know, Andrew Jackson was a, a populist outsider president who Donald Trump really likes. Uh, so protesters decided they were going to get together and topple this bronze statue. Um, this, and it, hundreds of demonstrators... And they were there, I guess, to protest police brutality, but they locked arms around this statue in Lafayette Square shortly before 8 last night, chanting, hey, hey, ho, ho, Andrew Jackson's got to go, according to this Washington Post account. Um, And a smaller group, some clad in black with goggles, helmets, and gas masks, so this looked quite deliberate and planned, scaled the statue, draped ropes around the seventh president who's sitting on a horse in this statue, Someone squirreled killer in black on the pedestal below. Here comes the U.S. Park Police in riot gear, and they're swinging batons, and they're releasing pepper spray, and they're trying to move the uh, protesters back. President Trump tweeted about this. Uh, it's either last night or this morning. Numerous people arrested in D.C. for the disgraceful vandalism in Lafayette Park of the magnificent statue of Andrew Jackson, in addition to the exterior defacing of St. John's Church across the street. That's the church that Trump famously walked to that had been the victim of vandalism earlier with a fire being set in the basement. Trump uh, said to reporters when I was watching, he's going to come up with some sort of executive order to protect statues. He says it's just going to add to what the existing situation is, but in a more organized fashion, the president said. He tweeted, uh, he's authorized the federal government to arrest anyone who vandalizes or destroys any monument, statue, or other federal property in the U.S. with up to 10 years in prison. Uh, okay, it's already illegal to do this, but uh, I didn't know the uh, the potential prison term was that high. Uh, so protesters, I mean, these were troublemakers, these were hoodlums. I, I don't care what their point was. Threw things at police as they retreated, officers shoved people out of the way, a woman hurled a folding chair, a folding chair that struck an officer who staggered away. Now, why Andrew Jackson? Well, he was an Army of the U.S. general. Uh, known for his harsh treatment of Native Americans as president. And it turns, the Post story says, well, he was also an enslaver. So I says, okay, what's the situation? So I did a little more research. Um, uh, it, the research tells me, also, by the way, there were tents outside Lafayette Park. The police didn't like that. There was concerns about traffic, so they tried to remove the tents. Anyway, Andrew Jackson, it turns out, co-owned with his son a plantation in Mississippi which housed 51 slaves at the time of his death. During his lifetime, according to Wikipedia, he may have owned as many as 300 slaves. So, you know, that's horrible. It's despicable. But as with Thomas Jefferson, as with George Washington, should we topple the statues and the monuments because 
he did something that was accepted at the time that is, you know, just, you know, I, I can't tell you how strongly I feel that this is a horrible thing. But we're judging these people by 2020 standards. Should it have been allowed uh, in the early 1800s? No, of course not. But there was a compromise to preserve the Union that allowed slavery up until the Civil War. It's part of a stain on American history. But I just wonder, you know, having all these statues taken down, defaced, toppled, um, is that a distraction from what happens? I mean, they're symbols. They're awful symbols in some cases. From helping people who are alive now, for helping, uh, you know, by helping um, minorities who are alive now improve their lives. All right, story number four. I don't understand this presidential tweet. I don't understand a lot of what he does. I mean, I, I do understand when he punches back hard against John Bolton or people on cable news who, who, who rip him or Democrats. You know, the president's entitled to do that. He's got a big platform. Here's the tweet. Look what's going on here. Where are the protesters? Was this man arrested? Turns out to be a video that was spread around Twitter by uh, a conservative. Uh, in, and the ultimate source is a guy named Tariq Nasheed. According to a story media, he calls himself the world's number one race baiter. He says that he baits racists and exposes them, get involved with our fight for justice. So what this um, video showed that the president retweeted without finding any details is a guy being assaulted, a Macy's employee, being assaulted because of his race and then claiming that the black person who was assaulting him had said the N-word or or he claimed that he said the N-word, which set off the black employee. It's not clear to me. I'm sorry, it's muddled. Um, And the guy who posted the tweet that the president retweeted said this is a horrific hate crime and if the races were reversed, it would be the only thing we talk about all day. So the president's getting hammered because, yes, He's uh, posting an example of black-on-white crime. And I'm not denying that there is black-on-white crime. And maybe this is the most, uh, a particularly egregious and horrible instance. But for a president at a time when, uh, you know, several black men have been killed by police, or in the case of Ahmed Aubrey, uh, by bystanders, if he chooses to, without much information, retweet this video of a black man beating up a white guy, is that helping the situation? It doesn't mean that it shouldn't be talked about. It shouldn't be reported about. Um, but the circumstances are unclear. Somebody who tweeted about this said this occurred in Flint, Michigan. I don't know. I'm sure we'll hear more about it. On a related matter involving the president, he gave an interview, he's giving a lot of interviews these days, to David Brody at Christian Broadcasting Network. And he said this, about former President Barack Obama. Brody, on Obama and the spying situation, there's this idea they were spying on your campaign. You've been asked before, what crime would he have potentially committed? And Trump says, treason. Treason. It's treason. Look, look, when I came out a long time ago and said they've been spying on my campaign, that was 2017, I said they've been taping. It's the modern-day version of taping. I still don't know that Donald Trump has a shred of evidence to say that Barack Obama, 44th president of the United States, knew about, authorized, condoned any surveillance on his campaign. You want to talk about Brennan, Clapper, uh, Susan Rice, others who may have known, but now you get into the unmasking and the Christopher Steele dossier and um, Michael Flynn. And there, I think, you have a legitimate argument. You know, did too many people in the administration know about this? Did they ask Flynn to be unmasked? Did they know it was Flynn? What did they do with that information? Did they leak it? 
But if you're going to accuse a former president of treason, you got to have something to back it up with. And that's been my position since the president, the current president, started this in 2017. All right, story number five is kind of a nightmare scenario laid out in the Washington Post. I really, it makes my head hurt even to think about this. It talks about, you know, the rise in this pandemic of mail ballots, which, you know, despite the president saying, oh, here's a tweet, another tweet from just yesterday. Because of mail-in ballots 2020 will be the most rigged election in our nation's history unless this stupidity is ended. We voted during World War I and World War II with no problem, but now they're using COVID in order to cheat by using mail-ins. Well, there are a lot of Republicans in the states well before COVID who say mail-ins are great. States have used it successfully. Republicans have had you know programs to get people to vote their way, as have the Democrats. During, you know, just people who want to vote absentee for whatever reason. There are five states that allow it without having to give a reason. Okay, so the Washington Post talks about the recent um, primary votes in Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Nevada, and that some races just went on for days as officials had to wade through thousands and thousands of absentee ballots. Kentucky votes today, New York votes today, there may be some of that as well. It is also a stark preview of what's coming on November 3rd, and more accurately, what may not be coming, an election night result in the race for the White House. Um, if voter, voters remain reluctant to cast ballots in person, says this piece, November is likely to bring an even more wa- massive wave of voting by mail. That, in turn, means that if it's a close race between Trump and Biden, even in one state, which might be pivotal in the Electoral College, it could take days, even weeks, to resolve the election. It's going to make Florida and the butterfly ballots of 2000 look like a picnic. Uh, You know, because for one thing, like we're all used to big election night, maybe it goes late in the night. I guess it was three in the morning last time. I remember sitting in New York on the Fox set. Uh, Well, three in the morning, I think, is when I got on. But it was certainly late at night when Trump was projected to have won enough electoral votes to be the next president. This well could happen. I mean, if it's a big win for one side or the other, that won't happen. If it's a close race and it comes down to one or two states and you've got thousands of absentee ballots, we won't know that night. We may not know the next day. I guess I don't think that's the end of the world. Democracy can be messy. This has happened in lots and lots of Senate races, House races, gubernatorial races. Sure. But what if this goes on as it did in 2000 until, you know, much of December? What if uh, Inauguration Day is approaching? What if there's a dispute over many of these ballots? I mean... I really hope this doesn't happen. I don't want to think about it, but it's out there now. And, you know, you can't say it's just crazy speculation because we're seeing versions of this in these local primary races right now, given the state of COVID. So, you know, as as in all of our personal lives, you know, are our kids going back to school in September? Is it going to be virtual online learning? Is it going to be a mix? Can they go to college dorms? There's so many unknown questions. And that's why I think, despite the fact that you don't see the coronavirus task force of the White House on TV anymore. The president talks only sparingly about uh, the crisis. It hasn't gone away. As my lead story indicated, in some states, you have these outbreaks now. I hope it all settles down. Like, Like everybody else, I want things back to normal, but clearly we're facing a new normal. With that, I want to thank you for listening. I hope that your new normal is better than what we were through a month ago, two months ago, three months ago. Uh, I encourage you to listen in any number of ways to this podcast. You got Google Podcasts, you got FoxNewsPodcast.com, Apple iTunes. Now you've got Spotify. You can get this on um, Pandora. 
or on your Amazon device. We'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.